now. So here we go. Here's Anna Tijoux. Tonight's guest is Leanne Rorapa, and is, she is the author of four previous collections of poems. Her first collection, Beyond Heart Mountain, was selected by Ishmael Reed as a National Poetry Series winner. Her second, Year of the Snake, was named winner of the Association of, of Asian American Studies Book Award. Her third book, On the Cusp of a Dangerous Year, was lauded as masterful and a gorgeous canticle. Most recently, her fourth collection of poems, Dandarians was described as a work of beauty and resilience. Rorapa has received an Archibald Bush Foundation Artist Fellowship, the Frederick Manfred Award from the Western Literature Association, the Randall Gerald International Poetry Prize, and an Academy of American Poets Prize. She serves as Editor-in-Chief of South Dakota Review and directs the Creative Writing Program at the University of South Dakota, as well as being the state's Poet Laureate. So this is my interview uh, with Leanne Rorapa. Uh, we're talking about her book, Tsunami versus the Fukushima 50. Um, and this is out of Milkweed Editions. 
And uh, for all you listening here at KKUP, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on this program or on the station do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the staff and management of KKUP. So here we go, Leanne Rorapa. So how did you hear about the radio show? <laughs> uh, when my last book, The Andarians, came out, uh, JP had invited me to do a podcast. And so uh, we, we spoke about that last volume. And then I guess my, uh, uh, that was something that my uh, publicity people at Milkweed had noticed. So they re- reached out to you to see if you'd be willing to talk to me about this book. Yeah, JP uh, handed the show over to me back in 2015, and I've been working, um, I've been uh, managing the show since then, so it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that book came out in 2014, so five years. Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. Um, so I'm really excited. I thumbed through your book, and I read it uh, a bit, like a quick read-through, just to get a sense of it, and uh, did a little bit of research about uh, sort of the background. So the book is called Tsunami versus the Fukushima 50. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. And the Fukushima 50 is a is according to a little bit of research is like um, is, are the 50 workers at the nuclear power plant in, from the um, the tsunami in 2011 that stayed behind? Correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so will you tell me a little bit about the inspiration for this book, how it came about for you, what, why it was important for you to get these poems out of you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always kind of written a little bit about Japan. Uh, my mother is a first-generation uh, Japanese immigrant, so, you know, that, that question of history and genealogy as well as sort of legacy of World War II issues has been hopefully important me and then I don't know I just felt very haunted um, and kind of devastated by the tsunami and then the subsequent Fukushima Daiichi reactor meltdown because it just seemed um, so awful that you know a small country that had survived the dropping of the atomic bombs at the end of World War II should be um, in the midst of a new, another uh, you know nuclear related Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I felt profoundly moved and terrified by that um, a lot of my writing also kind of works with issues of um, nature and ecocritical concerns so that so dovetailed into um, my interest in what the potential legacies um, from an environmental perspective would be with respect to Fukushima I see and so uh, and and so this sort of concern for the environment is that a, a, is that a cultural element I remember speaking um with a friend who is also Japanese American and 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 they were telling me that you know one of the big things that they grew up with was this concept of health and this concept of nature and these concepts of like family and I'm I'm Chicana and in our culture, we never really talked about nature. We talked about family, and we talked about community, and we talked about struggle. But environmentalism wasn't a foundational piece of our culture growing up. And would you say that that was something that you were brought up with? Um, I was, interestingly. I grew up in Wyoming in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, so that, um, that appreciation for natural beauty was strong. Um, I think just part of uh, being exposed to that landscape was um, significant to me. I felt very imprinted by it. And then, of course, my mother had, you know, um, a strong love of uh, gardening um, and flowers. And I think that was something she brought over from her native uh, Japan. And then just culturally in Japan, like they have a concept called forest bathing, which is that if you are ill, like psychologically or physically ill, that if you um, expose yourself to walking around in um, a forest, that it will uh, do, um, that it will help you uh, psychologically and physically. And and, there's actually uh, scientifically some, uh, some truth to that. 
Yeah, it's like holistic healing. Absolutely. I uh, I go hiking every weekend here in Monterey uh, over on the coast, so I know exactly what that means. <laughs> I know. Like, I feel it scrapes off a layer of crazy, so it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but that, as writers, we're, um, I guess I guess if we're writing with pen, pen and paper, we can be outdoors. But these days, I, I tend to compose on a computer, so I don't know what that's doing for my psyche. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of my uh, composition on a computer too. I'm like trying to be very aware when I'm outdoors and then I kind of just sort of open to things. But yeah, I do tend to do uh, my writing on the computer quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I need that delete. I need that delete button. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, this book is out of Milkweed, uh, Milkweed Editions, correct? That's what the uh, press is called. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and this is your second collection. Um, this is actually my fifth collection, wow. but it's my second collection with Milkweed Editions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so tell me a little bit about your experience with poetry. Like, how did you? How did you come to poetry, or, or in, in what ways do you see poetry being an important part of sort of the way that you function? <laughs> um, I think poetry is sort of my expression of my best self. I think that it's, it's the thing that I love the most, that matters the most to me, or the way I can sort of put my best self into the world. Um, I grew up reading and writing from a very early age. Um, my father taught English and creative writing at the University of Wyoming, so I was doing a lot of reading. I was encouraged to do a lot of writing, and then um, I took, uh, I went to university lab school, so I was allowed to take college classes um, beginning when I was 10. <laughs> so. so classes that I took were always um, were always like reading poetry or creative writing and so um, I really I really enjoyed that and I set that aside for a while actually my bachelor's degree was in piano performance and then I did graduate work in music history but in my mid-20s I really kind of felt like poetry and writing was first love best love and um, I returned to it uh, kind of on my own terms and uh, never looked back since. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny the way the way you get the poetry bug and then it doesn't go away. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sometimes you think I could be doing something more sensible, perhaps, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I know. I had a conversation with the poet and she was talking about sort of eco-poetics and, and, and I also asked this question of other groups of poets especially when um sort of so social justice and mm -hmm. all these different kinds of things and I say like is poetry is poetry enough for what we're trying to say like is this what we're supposed to be is this our social action you know <laughs> I don't I, I don't know what the answer is but go ahead maybe you have an answer <laughs> well I don't, know. I don't know what the answer is to that too because you know there it's um um it's it's not kind of direct action and you know it doesn't necessarily have the scope or breadth of of audience I mean but I do one of the things I notice is that in times of deep um, political or historical or environmental crisis we do culturally seem to turn to poetry and it does seem to um, speak to something that is maybe more deeply rooted in um in the self you know than than facts or you know um political speeches that there's i think a very strong intimacy of self speaking to self that allows one to be moved um the other thing i do know that um i'm kind of interested in neuroscience and, and mirror neurons in particular and one of the things i learned was that um when you read language um uh the what you read um, fires the same neurons in the brain as if the events that you're reading or the images that you're seeing are actually happening to you. Mm. So that seems pretty powerful to me. So maybe maybe poetry is more powerful than we we think it is. But um, it's it's what I'm it's what I'm able to do. So yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and that and that makes a lot of sense because I think as poets, what we're what we're attempting to do, and maybe. I'm spe as speaking for myself is I'm I'm attempting 
to have my reader experience the world as I have experienced it or in the, these voices that, that, that are coming through me are experiencing it. And so in, in many ways, I'm asking my readers to be empathetic towards something that maybe they never thought about before. And then that's part of the work, I think, of poetry that the, the, it is in, in a sense, it is kind of direct action. I mean, it's a, it seems mm -hmm. silly to someone outside of the world of poetry to believe that our verses are making direct action, but maybe it's just one reader at a time. <laughs> Absolutely. And I don't know. I mean, I think like making, making poetry, making art, I mean, I think, I think it's kind of a form of radical compassion and that seems like something that is necessary for us to um, perhaps you know feel as a culture at this moment absolutely and and I do I, I think I remember someone um, I can't remember who it was I should really start taking notes <laughs> about who says who says what um, but they were saying that every every huge social mu movement throughout time always had a strong art and sort of arts movement behind it. Like that was the supplementary part. It was the kind of, you know, the musics, the songs, the poetry, the 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 art, the visual art. All of these things fueled movements, social justice movements. And so, where I guess that's our role. Yeah. Yeah. So. So why don't we go right into reading a couple of poems, if you don't mind, from your book. Oh, not at all. Um, do you have some thumb, uh, do you have some marked that you'd like to read? Oh, sure. Um, uh, maybe I'll begin with the first poem in the book, uh, which is Ontology of Tsunami. And um, I... I I wanted to kind of create um, a complex supervillainess along the lines of the X-Men's Magneto um, <laughs> forged through trauma. So the way that, you know, Magneto was, his powers manifest uh, during the Holocaust um, through the trauma of seeing his mother murdered in front of him. Um, I wanted Tsunami to be kind of created through the literal trauma of the fault line in the um ocean floor. Um, and because she's a force of nature, um, these are all kind of third person poems. So they're all projections, I think, of fears and desires about about nature, natural disaster. So this is an ontology of tsunami. Awoken venom, cobra come uncharmed. Glittering rush of fanged lightning that strikes and strikes again. Tsunami has no name. Call her the scalded splash of tea jarred from a broken cup's cracked glaze. Call her the blood-soaked shirt and cutaway pants. Pooled ruby on the floor, rising biohazard. Ill-omened oil that stills the wings of birds. She spills and spills and spills over a sloshed bucket tipped over pitcher the bent tin cups cooled slice of rinse poured over skin's delicious prickle ginger's cleansing sting erasing the soft flesh of fish from the tongue she goes by no name call her a neolatrix Call her Tabula Rasa. She's the magic slate's crackling cellophane page. Shellacked wings unclung from staticky black elytra. The liminal torn open, turning words into invisible birds, lifting unruly as catastrophe. Yes, but, and. If only, if only, meticulous swift precision of disaster Swiss watch. She remains unnamed. Call her the meme infecting your screen. Call her the malware gone viral. I particularly, I particularly like the ending. 
I think it's so surprising to suddenly go from this sort of, well, you do it throughout the cellophane page and these other things that are happening, but the, the call her the meme infecting your screen was, it, it, that's what got me. <laughs> when I got the book, I was like, okay, yes, I'm going to talk to this poet. <laughs> you know, what interests me is that, you know, collision between, you know, technology and nature and the ways in which they're kind of, I think, a false binary to start, mm. you know, but Yeah. Yeah, well, what do you mean by that, like a false binary? Explain that a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, I think we tend to think of nature as being pristine, um, feminized. I think we tend to other and exoticize nature. Mm. Um, And technology tends to be masculinized, um, associated, I think, with, you know, the symbolic order, uh, patriarchy, and, you know, so as we start to kind of layer those associations, they are already kind of built upon, you know, these sorts of um, false binaries. But, you know, um, if, if man is nature, you know, then the technology that man creates is also kind of an output of that, I think. Or, you know, thinking about the ways that, you know, nature is, I don't know, always already technologized because we, you know, live in a tech, you know, technological world. So it's not like we have these sort of pristine patches of, of nature that are exempt from, you know, what happens technology. So I think there's, you know, we're actually existing in this hybridized space already. Absolutely. And it, it's sort of, I mean, I, I'm taken a, to different places with your book, um, particularly to a couple of places. One, I, when I, I was living in China for a couple of years, and when I was there, um, I was <clears throat> reading a book called Come Visit Sunny Chernobyl and 10 Other Toxic Places. It was like this anti-travel book about going to these places that have been destroyed, <laughs> which I thought was really weird, which is why I bought the book. And this person goes to Chernobyl, and what they find is that nature has already grown back. Like, it has already become itself over the technology that, that destroyed that destroyed the humans. But because the humans were removed from this particular place, the nature is sort of ruly and wild and, and, and unwielding and, and in existence. And then that took me to this other place called Centralia in Pennsylvania, where my husband and I went to go see, because it's a ghost town, and supposedly there's this fire burning underneath, a coal fire that's been burning for, you Mm -hmm. know, 40 or 50 years, and we went to go see, because we were very interested in ghost towns and and spaces where humans don't, don't go anymore, and it was just phenomenal to see how these vines and these animals and these giant spiders were taking over these dilapidated buildings and so on and so forth. And I think about that, what you're saying about the false binary between technology and environment, that like technology and environment exist in the same, in the same space. And they are, I mean, in many cases, what you're saying here is like with the tsunami and with this nuclear power plant, like this is the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a similar thing happened in Fukushima. So, like, the uh, the boars, the the, um, the, um, mm. the boars that were kind of foraging, they, they've been breeding unchecked, and they're kind of running wild and trampling everything down. And it's, you know, it's, like, horrific, but also comically absurd, right? So you have these radioactive boars, and they're so large that they don't know how to dispose of them safely. So, like... That's this kind of um, sort of nature kind of taking over, but nature that's been changed or altered by technology. Or even like thinking about Chernobyl, like uh, biologists went to study the barn sparrows um, or barn swallows, excuse mm-hmm. me. And um, what they discovered was that there uh, was mutancies, so like misshaped claws or um, beaks or shells that were too thin, but there was also um, a high rate of albinism, so a lot of white barn swallows, and that's something that they've actually discovered in in Fukushima, and that was like one of the poems that I wrote about was sort of the the white barn swallow. Um, Will you you read it? (laughs) This is great. Let me find the page here. Okay. Sure. sure. 
Okay, so this is called white tsubame, and tsubame is the Japanese word for uh, barn swallow. And uh, with the dramatic monologues of uh, victims or survivors of uh, the disaster, I wanted to kind of thread them through with um, uh, superheroes as a way of kind of maybe thinking about um, their their characters. So um, in White Tsubame, I am I envisioned a very um, like a young teenage girl. She's a tomboy, um, and the question, and she thinks that she's sprouting white wings like the um, like the albino barn swallows, and so she's sort of like Angel from the um, X Men. And the question, of course, is you know, is she really sprouting the wings? Has she herself becoming mutant from the radioactivity or you know also is she you know is she merely traumatized so white subame after the subame disappeared white feathers started sprouting from my shoulders and back in a furious itch of stiff follicles the weird tickle of snowy down it all began when more and more damaged butterflies appeared with stunted or crumpled wings. And the stained glass windows of cicadas' wings turned into a tangled lace mesh crocheted by a bent, contaminated hook. Soon, the hypnotic thrum and drone pulsing the horizon during late summer nights fell silent. No power tool surge of cicadas. No squeak shine scrubbing or tambourine jingle from the katydids and crickets. The gua 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 of frogs stopped from invisible ponds. And even towns just outside the nuclear exclusion zone became ghost towns too, where barn swallows lost all of their blues, turning into albino ghosts before abandoning their mud nests tucked under house eaves, leaving them to decay until all of the bird song was gone and everything was irradiated by a blinding wash of silence. My parents begged me to tell no one about the white swallow wings feathering my back. My father worked for TEPCO, cleaning up radioactive topsoil in the no-go zone and didn't want any trouble. My mother was worried I'd be shunned as damaged, so she bound down my wings every morning until they ached under gauze and I felt crumpled and stunted as one of the deformed butterflies. Or the pruned-down bonsai my grandfather in New Cato trained to grow into strange transfigurations. Before my grandfather disappeared during the I visited him every year during Amba Matsuri, the festival of the safe wave. I loved how he split open fresh salmon with a silver fish knife to squeeze out sticky orange roe directly onto hot rice for breakfast. Now, coastal fishing boats rock crippled in their harbors, crumpled sails pinned down, going on fake runs only so scientists can test for cesium levels in the fish. My wings grow larger and more unwieldy, become difficult for me to hide underneath my hoodie. Sometimes I stand on the roof of the tallest building in Minamisoma and think that if I jumped, then everyone would finally know the truth. Barn swallows are said to be harbingers of luck, so maybe I could be like the Tsubame who returns, bearing good fortune. I could fly across the river, looping over water bright with the hot swirl of irradiated golden carp. I could fly all the way across the border patrols into the no-go zone. I could fly all the way back to Ukedo to search for my missing grandfather, because ever since the insects died off and stopped their singing, I can hear his lost and desecrated bones tapping out an SOS into the two quiet nights. Please help me. I am lost. Please help me. I am lost. 
You're listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. Um, this interview is with Leanne Aurorapa, uh, author of Tsunami and the Fukushima 50. Um, real quick call out for the community calendar. This Saturday, May 10th at Old Capitol Books in downtown Monterey, there'll be a poetry reading beginning at 7 p.m. featuring Heather Flesher, Davis Mendez, uh, Craig Bellows, Jeffrey er- Irwin and myself. So please check out Old Capital Books online or on Facebook for more information. And just to remind you, KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM is non-commercial radio staffed completely by volunteers and supported 100% by our listeners. We have provided an alternate source for music and information not readily available on other stations for over 40 years. By maintaining a separation from corporate backing, underwriting, or any other source of funding that might place demands on our programming, we're free to entertain and educate the listening community in a unique way. Every day we offer music ranging from comical to classical, reggae to barbershop, new age to oldies, and not to mention our amazing poetry radio show. If you find this station worth supporting, please become a member. You can do that online or you can give me a call here at the studio. The number is 408-260-2999 or 831-480-1999. all right, I'm going to play some music. I'm going to play some Ana Tijoux again. Uh, this song is called Creo en Ti, which is uh, I Believe in You. So here we go, and then we'll get back to the interview with Leanne Rorapa after the music. Creo en lo imposible la locura más cuerda es buscar cómo ser libre Creo en lo imposible Que de nuestras espaldas brotarán las alas Que nos harán volar invencible Creo en lo imposible Que el simbo silenciará el efecto de sus misiles Creo en lo imposible Creo que es posible Hacer de este mundo un mundo sensible Creo en nuestros sueños como punta de lanza El arma perfecta para nivelar la balanza Creo en las acciones, las acciones cotidianas Que te llenan de vida, te llenan de esperanza En lo pequeño radica la fuerza Con tu cariño yo caminaré Imaginando rutinas bellas Para dar vuelta al mundo al revés Empezar por nuestra casa primero Romper con todo nuestro miedo Ser consecuente de cuerpo y de mente Para alzar el vuelo por senderos nuevos Porque tu luz cotidiana enciende la sonrisa que sale por la mañana Creo en ti Porque veo tu fuerza inexplicable Esa puta dignidad yo reafirmo que tu rabia proviene del dolor y tu lucha florece del amor Porque en ti me veo yo Con problemas y dilemas, con trabas, con vallas, con tropiezos y con penas. Creo en el cotidiano que hemos hecho a mano, tallado con el paso de lo que caminamos. Nadie muestra su careta, sonrisas y moriquetas. Solo esconden la verdad, desarticulando la micropolítica de la vida personal. Creo en nuestros sueños, volando para el cielo. Creo en tus acciones más fuertes que balas, transformando nuestro barrio al final de la jornada. Con ideas que el dinero no compra ni paga. Por eso yo no vine a convencer los convencidos Ni a predicar a los que se sienten vencidos Yo vine a compartir con quien haya entendido Que la pelea empieza por el nido Porque tu luz cotidiana enciende la sonrisa que sale por la mañana Creo en ti Porque veo tu fuerza inexplicable Esa puta dignidad Yo reafirmo que tu rabia proviene del dolor Y tu lucha florece del amor Porque en ti me veo yo Tiempo que elegí, creo, creo, tu mirada junto a mí, creo, creo, somos rebeldía, creo, creo, la rabia y la alegría, creo, creo, y en nuestros sueños, creo, creo, volando para el cielo, creo, creo, desplegando alas, libertad y esperanzas.
right, that was Anna Tijoux from her album Vengo. The song is Creo en Ti. All right, we're going to get back to our interview, my interview, with uh, Leanne Roropa, who's the author of Tsunami versus the Fukushima 50 out of Milkweed Editions. So here we go. Hope you're enjoying the show tonight. Wow. Wow. You know, the thing that's sort of amazing with your work is that is is that one it does have that overview of sort of the uh the supernat like the superhero slash mutant thing that you're talking about the sort of x-men slash uh you know that stuff but it also has this very tender relationship to humanity in that like mm, it reminds me of gabriel garcia marquez's very old man with enormous wings where as this girl is growing these wings, you know, her mom's trying to hide them. And it makes me think about this angel falling from heaven with these giant wings in this like village and the representation of sort of humans fusing with these things. is just, it's really beautiful. It's this is really great work, by the way. I mean, not that my opinion matters, but it's great. <laughs> really fantastic. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about about this is like, the Fukushima 50 are the people who stayed behind at the nuclear power plant. Do you, did, I mean, do you have some background story for that? Um, yes, I do. Um, I even have a, a, one of my poems is written in the voice of one of the Fukushima 50, and I could read that for you if you like. Sure. Um, but what was, it's interesting because the Fukushima 50 was somewhat of a journalistic construct. Apparently there were more than 50 people um, who stayed behind. But what is kind of interesting and also scary about the situation was that they were evacuated from the power plant, but then they chose to return and uh, attempt to pour water to uh, cool down um, and slow down the meltdown process. Um, and it seems that if they hadn't done that, um, uh, it, it's quite likely that Tokyo would have had to have been evacuated, which um, the the near miss of it and sort of the, uh, the scope was already devastating, but right. to think about how um, more devastating the scope could have been um, is, is really um, astonishing. So, uh, of course, you know, these are, these are people then who did expose themselves to, um, you know, um, amounts of radiation that are probably uh, going to um, have ill effects on their longevity and their and their health. So there's, I just felt so moved by um, that uh, that kind of heroism. Mm. Um, they remained there for a long time um, under conditions which were where there wasn't a lot of um, a lot of sort of food or um, so they they had to stay there for I think over a month and then um, and then of course they couldn't leave in their clothes because uh, the their clothes were irradiated so they were like um, they were given like you know sweatpants and like um, their belongings in a bag and they kind of exited looking very um, very strange. Um, so I, I, it's such a moving story. I um, I really I was just really I was really marked or haunted by that. I think. Uh, yeah, and you know it it makes me think about a lot of the work that people do um, that goes unseen in in disaster situations in uh, you know in the human human heroism really like the valor of it is really beautiful um i remember i lived through the 1989 earthquake i was seven here in california and our house split in half and the road split open and there were gas pipes everywhere and i remember one of the stories that my family tells is my dad was taking a shower and he jumps out of the shower and he's only in his boxers and he's and he doesn't have he doesn't have any you know shoes on or anything but Everyone knows that there's a, a little old lady who lives across the street and her house was crumbling. And so he waves down a man in a truck on, on the street and they go in and they get um, Mrs. Blackie was her name uh, out of her house. And I think about that, that ability for humans to save other humans when we're talking about social justice work and we're talking about the way things need to change in the world and how ugly things are, we always sort of get these way, these 
these discussions about how humans are so awful to other humans. But there are so many stories when humans are not awful to other humans and they do these things that are just beautiful. And I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, your father and it's, it's remarkable and so moving. And, and that was another reason I think why I wanted to kind of thread these through with um, associations with superheroes created by radioactivity, because these are all just sort of normal, um, everyday people who had to rise um, and, and, and deal with um, extraordinarily frightening and terrible circumstances. <laughs> yeah, and you, you capture it so well in the book. It's really fantastic. Thank you. Um, can you read uh, an- can you read another couple of poems? Yeah, um, I'll read uh, the uh, the poem in the voice of the fictional Fukushima uh, character. I set him as um, invisible man because uh, you know these these were ordinary people who I, I don't think people realized the extent of their heroism. Um, and the other thing that I, I felt profoundly um, moved by was the fact that they um, that they expressed sadness for not having been able to do better and it, when they really um, put everything in line. Mm-hmm. So this is anonymous as in man. I agree to speak, but only on condition of anonymity. I worry about my children being ostracized at school and still feel much shame for being unable to prevent over 150,000 people having to flee their homes in the nuclear exclusion zone. It happens so quickly, like a line of falling dominoes, one tile knocking down the nets. First, the terrible jolts of the Tohoku earthquake causing the massive tsunami which knocked out power and flooded the emergency generators, preventing coolants from reaching the fuel rods, causing them to overheat and melt down three of the nuclear reactors, leading to the hydrogen explosions. A hero? I don't consider myself a hero. The international media named us the Fukushima 50, But there were hundreds of engineers, technicians, soldiers, and firefighters who remained in the heart of the disaster for weeks with dwindling food and water and no reinforcements. Those of us who responded to plant manager Yoshida's call and returned to Fukushima Daiichi to cool the crippled reactors by manually pumping in seawater were prepared to sacrifice our lives like kamikaze pilots. The other workers formed a line and saluted us as we departed the disaster response headquarters where we'd been evacuated. TEPCO reprimanded Yoshida for defying their orders, then later commended him for preventing a chain of nuclear fission reactions that would have led to the evacuation of Tokyo. Some people claimed we saved Japan. It was a full month before I'd leave Fukushima Daiichi again, and when I was finally released for the first time to visit my family, I was almost unrecognizable. I'd lost so much weight and grown a scraggly beard. I hadn't bathed in weeks. I was asked to strip down for the compulsory radiation check and given a too-big tracksuit, a plastic bag to carry my things. I declined to reveal my internal radiation levels. People gave me strange looks on the train and avoided sitting next to me. But when we arrived at Tokyo Station, the city glittered and jostled, the same as before Fukushima, as if none of it had happened. I got off the train, slipping into the city's stream, and then I quietly disappeared. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Really good. Um... So let's go into the sort of questions that I tend to ask because I'm just curious, which is like, who are the poets that you read? <laughs> I am, um, 
I'm primarily interested in reading um, poets of color, queer poets, trans poets, um, women poets. I, I tend to be more interested in what it means to write from the margin as opposed to the center. Um, and given that I am I myself am biracial and uh, pansexual, those have been the poets who also for me provided um, a potential mirror for identity or a way of speaking and writing um and early on there i i think that those were questions that i had you know mm. do i have a voice that you know is allowed to speak within this literary landscape or this poetic landscape so those are the poets that i do tend to gravitate toward the most yeah ditto <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean my my I, I'm probably yours as well. Our our primary uh, sort of foundation for poetry is uh, the American landscape of poetry, which, ten, which tends to be white and male and heterosexual and mostly Christian. But then, <laughs> but then at some point you decide, whoa! Like if I really like this poem by William Carlos Williams, what if I found this other poem written by this person who actually looks like me has had an experience like me and writes just as good as WCW. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is, I don't know, that's so important. Um, I think it, it's, it's crucial. Oh yeah. It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And, and it's, it's one of the things that I've been really fortunate since uh, when JP dancing bear gave me, a, gave me the show I remember him saying, you know, it's about time. It's about time a woman <laughs> took over this show. And the show's been around since the 1970s, and I'm the first, um, yeah, definitely the first woman of color to, to manage this show. So it's it's been really nice to be able to choose poets and to choose voices and to say, like, who I get to put at the center of the conversation as opposed to just following whatever the poetry world tends to, to do. Right. Oh, that's marvelous. I think that's great. But we, we are seeing a landscape of change in the poetry world, I think. I mean, have you seen any change over the time? You have five collections, so you've seen things, uh, you know, over time. Have you witnessed changes in the way that we're being read and who's being read? Yes, I think that um, for starters, um, I think there are more. Uh, I think there's... Um, there is an awareness that there are voices that should be heard and that we should be listening to and that are also amazing voices. Um, there's also even sort of um, an important discussion of tokenization too, so that, you know, there's not only one, you know, Native American writer who speaks of all, for all, you know, the Native American tribes or, you know, one Asian, um, Asian American poet who, you know, um, has this kind of collective power to represent. And so um, that, I think, is a conversation that has been um, long overdue. And I think, you know, the questions, too, about, you know, aesthetics. So the, um, the, the, the notion that, you know, there can be... Um, uh, writers of color who are working in an aesthetically experimental vein as well as narrative and lyric and having that kind of aesthetic and cultural diversity um, is, is is really important and I think we sort of see that uh, slowly being reflected to in um, who's being asked to read at conferences and also in our larger prizes and it's long overdue and it's something that makes me really happy to see. Yeah, it makes me happy to see as well, and especially because, um, you know, me, like many other writers of color who have been working in these spaces, like, I, I've had this conversation over and over again, which is, I asked one of my professors at Pitt, like, were there any brown poets, like, that I could read, you know, I, I, I was reading the black arts movement, I was reading the poets from, from the African American culture, I was reading the traditional white and experimental white poets, but mm -hmm. there was no, there were no Latinos on the, on the agenda. <laughs> and I asked, and, and the professor just sort of shrugged at me about it, and, and maybe sent me a link to like one book. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, this is 2008, you know, this has got to be, there's got to be more people out there, and, and I had read Juan Felipe Herrera and a lot of those works, but I wanted to know who was working now. Yeah, 
as well you should, right? I mean, those, I mean, I feel that every, you know, every writing student, every poet, you know, deserves to have a wide array of models that speak, you know, to them. And, uh, and I think there's no excuse anymore not to have that, you know? <laughs> yeah, especially not in poet. I mean, there's no excuse anymore for poetry. <laughs> And, you know, it's good. Yeah, we are seeing, we're seeing a lot of things um, move in different directions, and it makes me really happy. And it also makes me happy to have had your book come across my desk. I was really excited when I saw it. The cover is beautiful, by the way. Um, just, oh, is yeah. wonderful. And Mary Austin Speaker, who's also a talented poet, is, you know, a design genius. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's and and as I read the book and I look back at the cover, I think, oh, this this very much looks like a, a mixture of sort of superhero ness in this cover, and and it's really nice, just really well done. Um, can can you read a, a couple? How about we have time for about two more poems? Okay, let me read Hulk Smash, and then we can maybe see how uh, the time is. Uh Doing. This is another monologue in the voice of um, a fictional uh, survivor of the tsunami and then subsequent Fukushima disaster. Um, and this was um, a man who is a scientist, sort of a, a quiet botanist, who I decided to uh, have him become my, uh, my Hulk. Hulk smash. Because it was afternoon and I was at the carnation farm when the earthquake struck. Because by the time I arrived back home to help my family, traffic jams had clogged shut the main arterial roads leading inland from Futabamachi. Because when the tsunami breached the seawall and concrete disintegrated like strewn chunks of soggy plywood. We had to leave our car and flee for higher ground. Because the elevated hill marked as the evacuation point for an elementary school seemed like it should be safe until the tsunami rose like a thundering wall of water and blotted out the sky. Because there wasn't time for us to climb all the way up the hill, so I held my wife and daughter in my arms, and we clung together tightly wrapped around a tree. Because the icy water uprooted the trees so easily, like plucking up a blade of grass and tore my wife, Mayumi, away from me. Because I could see Natsu was crying for her mother, though I couldn't hear her, above the roar of the water, and I was scared I'd hurt her from holding on so tight. Because when I regained consciousness again with a concussion and a broken leg after having blacked out, my arms were empty. Because she was only three. Because I was taken against my will to a hospital in Itate, where I was promised that rescue workers would search the coast for any survivors and bring them to safety. Because the meltdowns and hydrogen explosions at Fukushima Daiichi began the next day, and everyone within a 20-kilometer radius was evacuated so that no one was able to look for my wife or my daughter. Because the nuclear accident at Fukushima Daiichi was, as it turns out, preventable. Because what if my wife and daughter were injured but still alive? And what if someone had only searched for them during those early days after the tsunami? Because it was over a month before I was allowed back into the exclusion zone where I found Mayumi's body in a nearby rice field. Because my wife's remains were so terribly decomposed after having been left out to weather the elements, insects, birds, and vermin, she was no longer recognizable, and the Buddhist burial rites could not be followed before her body was burned. Because over four years have passed with my life still in limbo, unable to return to what's left of my home, to my work breeding carnations, unable to lay Mayumi's ashes to rest on ancestral ground. 
because my daughter Natsu is still missing, even though I search for her every month in the five-hour increments allowed by radiation guidelines. Because I am by nature a quiet and scientific man, a botanist by trade, but I work so ferociously at clearing debris and digging along the shoreline in search of my daughter's remains, tearing off my hazmat gear when it gets in the way or when it becomes too hot, that volunteer search teams have nicknamed me the Hulk. Because so what? I no longer care about being exposed to radiation, and maybe it'll make me stronger anyway, like the weird profusion of two bright and hardy flowers blooming in the irradiated wake of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, maybe even strong enough to hold on to what matters. Because plans are underway to build a containment facility in Futaba City for the bags upon bags of contaminated topsoil and radioactive debris gathered by the cleanup workers that no one knows what to do with. Because if this happens, Futaba will become just a permanent trash site for nuclear waste, a toxic garbage dump where my daughter's remains will be abandoned forever. Because how can I let this be? Because my arms are empty. Because she was only three. Because now, every month when I spend my five hours searching the no-go zone, and I see one of the many rusted TEPCO signs reading, nuclear power, bright future of energy, I feel such a huge surge of adrenaline and rage that I have to tear it down. Oh my gosh. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM. That was Leanne Rorapa uh, reading from her book, Tsunami versus the Fukushima 50 out of Milkweed Editions. Uh, thank you for listening tonight. I'm going to play you out with some, again, Anna Chiju, and then uh, I'll be back next week with more poetry. So here we go. ser tu gran amiga, incluso tu compañera de vida, yo puedo ser tu gran aliada, la que aconseja y la que apaña, yo puedo ser cualquiera de todas, depende de cómo tú me apodas, pero no voy a ser la que obedece, porque mi cuerpo me pertenece, yo decido de mi tiempo, cómo quiero y dónde quiero, independiente yo nací, independiente decidí, yo no camino detrás de ti, yo camino de la para ti. Tú no me vas a humillar, tú no me vas a gritar. Tú no me vas a someter, tú no me vas a golpear, tú no me vas a denigrar, tú no me vas a obligar, tú no me vas a silenciar, tú no me vas a callar. No sumisa ni obediente, mujer fuerte, insurgente, independiente y valiente, rompe la cadena de lo indiferente. No pasiva ni oprimida, mujer linda que da vida, emancipada en autonomía, antipatriarca y alegría. ser protagonista de nuestra historia y la que agita la gente, la comunidad, la que despierta la vecindad, la que organiza la economía de su casa, de su familia.
You are listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM on the on your radio dial, kkup.org, streams worldwide, anywhere. Hey, thank you to the poet. That was a great interview, and the poems and the book that she wrote is amazing. Hey, guess what song I'm going to start you with? It's Only a Paper Moon. Say it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Yes, it's only a canvas sky Hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Without your love It's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody played in a penny arcade to Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Say 